Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. Today, we'll be looking at On Being Brought from Africa to America by Phyllis Wheatley. My name is Niall, by the way. Thank you for listening. So Phyllis Wheatley is is quite an extraordinary poet in in many ways she's an extraordinary she was an extraordinary human being she was the first african-american to have her poetry published in a collection i guess by an by i guess by an esteemed publisher but i guess all publishers were esteemed back then because it cost money to bring books out so she was the first published african-american poet she was a woman as well. And I mean, women weren't exactly getting published around the time she got published either. Her first book was published in 1773. Um, she was a slave for a fair part of her life. She was brought over to America, to Boston, from West Africa, possibly Gambia. Now, um, she was seen as a weak child who probably had some kind of illness during her crossing. So she was sold at a, a very cheap rate um, to... John Wheatley he was so he bought he bought her for, for as a house servant for his wife Susanna so they noticed this poor girl um, who had been sold into slavery judging from her teeth they, they guessed that she was about seven years old seven or eight years old and what the captain of the ship saw as um, a, an illness that was probably going to take her life they saw as as a young woman from a very hot a girl a child from a very hot country struggling to deal with a change of climate when going to north america and the northern part of north america at that so um she was wrapped only in some sort of coarse carpet that was it um and so she was suffering from from the temperature from the cold um so so they she was but yes she was quite a slight child she was a weak child so they decided to 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 have her as a household servant now that didn't happen in the end she she was uh, i think the daughter mary of the family started to teach her when she was very young and she taught her to read and to write and uh, phyllis wheatley proved herself to be a good learner and, a, and an intelligent child she was soon i mean in her teens she was able to read she loved reading the augustan poets so alexander pope john dryden she also loved reading john milton and she also read she could read in latin and she could read in greek ancient greek as well and latin so she she was also um, a fan of, of Homer, of Horace and of Virgil and so other, other great sort of classical poets that she was reading. Um, and she also loved reading the more difficult passages of the Bible. So all of these things formed an influence with her. Now, around the time she was writing, she published her first collection in 1773. So this was the beginning of Romanticism if we were in England. But I suppose she was very much influenced by the last generation of poets as well as the poets that influenced that generation. And I mean, so, so yes, this is obviously a very intelligent young woman. It was very uncommon for women even to get an education like she was getting, even though it was a private education. And it was, it's certainly, certainly uncommon for slaves at the time to be given an, an education. They, they tried to, so she started writing poems herself. And so she brought together her first collection of poems, which went under the title 
poems on religious subjects, religious and moral. Now, most of her poetry, um, the poem that we're going to read is quite different for, from her other poems because it does address the subject of, of slavery directly, whereas a lot of her poems were elegies. A lot of her poems were not autobiographical. There are ever references to slavery in her poems, but not many. But mainly it was kind of celebrating current events. It was poems written perhaps in praise of public figures. She took on the cause of American independence as well. So even though she sort of wrote some um, a flattering poem about the king, she soon started writing poems that were sympathetic with the cause of the American Revolution. She lived in Boston, after all. So she became quite the celebrity. No one wanted, as far as I know, she she, she had problems getting published or being accepted in America. There was still that colonial mentality. So ironically, her, um, um, I think it was Susanna, um, her mistress, she wrote to um, Selina Hastings, who was the Countess of Huntingdon. She was a, an abolitionist, um, and so she was a progressive in many ways. I mean, the abolitionist cause was gaining more more steam in England during that time, as it was in as not so much in the um, in the colonies. And so, um, and so, they very, but people were enthusiastic about her work. They wanted to publish her work in England, and she did travel over to London um to to meet people um she had a poetry published in london magazine although london magazine published her work as a kind of specimen um as something that demonstrates um the advancement of the african people rather than still being seen as an equal they had to have all these caveats for publishing her work people are also critical of the wheatleys for um even though she was eventually emancipated before the death of the mother um, she was still kept as a slave throughout most of these years and she and people were critical in, in England about her being kept as a slave while being sort of paraded as an example um, of of the intelligence of black people and as an example of why slavery should be abolished. I think this whole thing is, is fraught with tri tricky moral quandaries. Um, so for a sympathetic family, for instance, I mean, her crossing, you know, as a child and her selling it, being sold into slavery, I cannot imagine the trauma of that. Now, even though she was, you know, you could argue better treated than other slaves, she she didn't have to perform. Once her writing got going, uh, once her education got going, she didn't have to perform any domestic duties in the Wheatley household. That, that was left to other slaves in the household. Um you know, but we shouldn't always see her good treatment or even the the, the the progressive nature of her owners as something that I don't know. It's it's a tricky situation. It's just, you know, obviously from today's standpoint and from today's standards, we can look at them and still see lots of lots of problematic things. If we were there at the time, would it look like they were sticking their necks out? Was it would it have looked like they were taking a risk, risking their own livelihoods um, against the cause of slavery? I'm not the man to answer that question. But I did find it particularly galling, as I mentioned, what must have been un unbelievably traumatic about her crossing over um, and, and her, her, the beginning of her life as a slave before she was better treated. It's that her name, it's obviously she took her surname is the name of, of her owners. That's, that's how slavery worked. Slaves would, would take on the, the surnames 
of of their masters but also um her her her, her christian name phyllis because obviously it doesn't sound like a west african name her christian name was taken from the name of the ship that brought her over and maybe it was seemed like a really nice gesture at the time but goodness me, could you imagine? Could you imagine how traumatic it must have been being brought over on that ship and then to be named after that ship? Absolutely mental. Um, but that was her name, Phyllis Wheatley. So she did, she was emancipated and she was given her freedom. And I mean, at her fame, right? So there was one point where when her collection was released, she had to prove she was the writer of this collection. But it wasn't just some wily propaganda by, by abolitionist whites who'd written these poems themselves and then said that she wrote it as a, as a sneaky bit of propaganda. And so she was actually sort of called to a kind of hearing um, where she was assessed, I think, by the state governor and other quite high-ranking figures. Now, they all found her that, that they were satisfied that she wrote the poems and they wrote enthusiastic testimonials that were included in her book. So maybe she did quite well out of that in the end. But of course, there was that arm's distance that she was always kept at. I don't think she was really appreciated as, as a poet in her own right until sort of long after her death. So you might remember when I spoke about the poetry of Lady Mary Roth, um, but I wasn't entirely infused of her poetry. I felt that she was an important historical figure, but I, I, feel, I felt that her poetry hadn't translated well across time to contemporary ears and sensibility as well as her contemporaries such as Ben Johnson had. Now, I think Phyllis Wheatley, I think her work really stands up. Perhaps it even stands up more now than it did before. I think, I think there's a certain generosity that we have of t with today's ears that we can really appraise her work. Her, I think, her, yeah, I've, so her work still, I think her poetry is, it still stands up and uh, maybe it's even got better with age. Who knows? Because poetry subjective. And when we speak of something being better, we don't mean it actually getting better like a wine, you know, in, in some sort of almost objective sense. But rather that um, it finds itself existing in a time where its audience are more able to appreciate it. So I'm going to read a poem in a minute. I'll give a few more biographical details and then we'll get straight into it. So she she hit these heights of being this 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 um slave and then and then an emancipated slave who who really was recognized well not entirely recognized but but, but you know she found fame as a poet and a writer of poetry and she had her poetry published and she was the first african american not just the first african american woman but the first african american to be published as a poet these were all really important really really important thresholds here so what happened after she was emancipated she was emancipated shortly before um her, her mistress died and i think the, Wheat the wheatleys died and the children died as well they, they they sort of died of illnesses not too long after so phyllis wheatley was very much left when she was emancipated she was left without a benefactor she was left without anyone to look after her she had to make she, she had to she had she was exposed to the reality that ex that many emancipated slaves met with which was yes they were free but now in order to survive to keep a roof over their heads and to have to eat they had to work and now they were in competition with the whites for work and of course people were going to employ the whites first so so there was a lot of poverty 
there was a, it was a big you know when you got emancipated yes you were free but that was the beginning of your struggles and that very much happened with her unfortunately she she got married and her husband was a bit of a sort of entrepreneur i think he's been as people have said he's been characterized i mean he he ended up going to jail for debt and i think it's easy to characterize an entrepreneur or someone who has big ambitions to build businesses and make money as a fool, you know what I mean? As someone who's perhaps being led by the bright lights and is greedy. But it seems that no, these were tough times and he would have had tough opportunities. And, and I don't think and I don't think it's necessarily we just immediately paint his failures as him being a bad businessman. He was it was a very tough environment for him to do these things and desperate measures might have called for him to try and become an entrepreneur to carve out that particular niche, but it didn't work. And so her final years were spent alone and in poverty, especially when he was in jail. And he, she was seeing less of him anyway because he had to go further out to try and find work. Um, her children died. So so all of her children died. She had three children. Two of them died. And then um, I think she'd just given birth to one of her, to, to, to her, to, to a child when she died. And... Um, she was she died quite young as well if we i think she was under 30 when she died if i go back to my notes yeah she was 31 when she died so she'd just given birth and then the, she died and then the son that she gave birth to he died soon after and they were buried together so so the story has a very sort of sad ending in that sense that actually she was given her freedom and but as someone who was held up as a beacon as an example of why we should free slaves it seemed that she ran out of ran out of people who wanted to help her at some point and was left to the same fate that many free black people had to struggle with if they had become emancipated or if they had been born of emancipated um people so I think that's enough of that. We're going to go into the poem. I mean, I might talk more about the influences of her poetry because some, there's a few more interesting things about her story and then we're going to wander off on one. So let's read the poem. It's a very short poem too. On being brought from Africa to America by Phyllis Wheatley. Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a god that there's a saviour too once i redemption neither sought nor knew some view our sable race with scornful eye their colour is a diabolic dye remember christians negroes black as cane may be refined and join the angelic train so the, the argument of the poem is is relatively easy enough to follow. It, and it does address a kind of contradiction. I mean, immediately some people might read this as a, as a pro-slavery poem, saying that it was mercy that brought her from her pagan land, um, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God and there's a saviour too. So this is a very religious woman. Her poetry was religious. You know, her poems, as she says in the title of her collection, are religious and moral. But um, and so, yes, she's celebrating becoming a Christian. She's celebrating welcoming Christ into her life. 
And is this her celebrating slavery? No, it isn't, because there's other poems where she speaks quite dismissively of slavery, and and, and she makes it known um, that it, but it is a cruel thing. But actually, ultimately, it is not. A Christian culture should not be um, following the practice of slavery. She was quite forthright in not all of her poems, but in some of her poems in spelling that out. She also compared the sort of trade of slavery to Egypt in in the book of Exodus as well so you know the, the Egyptian enslavement of the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament she she, she compared that you know she saw a, an immediate a- analog to African slavery in the plantations and in in the colonial reaches of the empire and yeah the countries that carried on with slavery when they were no longer part of the empire so while we can, some might read it as a poem that defends slavery, it really doesn't. It's more a celebration of her finding Christianity. Um, and she uses this, it's, I mean, there's a sort of sting in the tail in the argument of a poem itself. So, once I redemption neither sought nor knew, some view our sable race with scornful eye, their colour is a diabolic dye. Remember Christians, Negroes, remember Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. So she uses Christianity ultimately at the end of the poem, I think, to argue against slavery and to argue for equality of black people as well by saying that. Now, it was a common conception at the time that people felt that the um, the pagan peoples of the world and the darker skinned peoples of the world so i guess that would be arabic people maybe asian people and maybe african people um it was one it was a where they were seen as human but they were seen as the descendants of cain rather than the descendants of abel so cain is the sort of bad brother the son of eve and adam who slew his brother cain um, and that's and they said that there's after he was banished by God, um, both basically gave but both had issued forth separate lineages, and she's saying, but no, you know, the Bible itself says that the descendants of Cain, we can join the angelic train as well. That we are, you know, because we are human, we can open ourselves to Christ and we can open ourselves to God, and we can have eternal life. So that sums up the argument of the poem. Now I think it's quite. Already you can see the, the, the roots of the poem and the influences, the Augustans, but also the classical poets. Um, the cleverness in the turn of phrase and her argument, how she begins a poem with, with a sentiment that ultimately seems like it's defending slavery, saying, oh, well, it was a mercy that I was taken as a slave because otherwise I would be a pagan and I wouldn't have, you know, everlasting life. But ultimately it then uses that same logic by the end of the poem to cast doubt upon that, to actually say no. The good thing is, is that I'm a Christian. The bad thing, you know, that does not make slavery a good thing. It's, it was a mercy in the sense that I now have, my soul has found mercy, which is which is subtly different. So we already see this, someone who, who's well-versed with the classics, who's well-versed with, with writing subtle argumentation, um, the kind of, and the kind of well-formed wit you could say, that we find within the poetry of Pope and Dryden and the Augustans. Um, we also have just a perfect iambic pentameter running throughout the poem. I mean, technically, the poem is so tight. Um, so it is written in rhyming couplets. And again, rhyming couplets, they are the most merciless of um, of 
of ways of, of putting your rhymes together. If your rhymes are corny or hackneyed or overdone, then the rhyming couplet will really point that out. Um, so yes, land and understand, two and new, okay. I and die is a more interesting rhyme. And then finally, cane and train is a really interesting rhyme as well. But um, before that, there's still just little caesuras, little changes in voice. Um, their colour is a diabolic dye. I mean, that, that line, so it's her voicing racists at the time before she answers those racists. It's a terribly horrible thing to say to someone and yet i kind of admire the line with the skill with its with within which it has been written um so she 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 obviously perhaps because she got into these poets so young she had a natural flair for rhyme she has a natural flair for meter she has a natural flair for observing the form and i really think you can see those augustan sort of fingerprints in these poems and these influences but also influences that go further back into the bible and into virgil and into homer now i read another reading of this poem which i found quite interesting so there's a, there's an article about poets to read for black history month and um there was a poet called Camille T. Dungy who really makes a really interesting point when she talks about this poem, which she says seems simple. Now, I don't think the poem seems simple at all already, but I understand that most people read this poem. It's quite short. It has a nice lyrical sort of, well, not lyrical, but just there's a, there's a nice sort of sing-songy quality to it as well. The rhyme is pleasant. The meter is pleasant. So I can understand why people might think it's 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 simple in that sense. But she almost states, so um, this poet states that when she chooses this poem to, to speak of as a poem that, that we can read for Black History Month, she says that there's almost a, a, a Morse code in the stressed syllables of the poem which I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. Because, yes, it would have been a conceit, perhaps, especially from a poet that liked reading Milton and Milton's influence from Shakespeare and how Milton also would like to kind of put these little clues within the text as well and to, to use line breaks sort of really in, in a really interesting way as well. Um, so if we look so if we look for a secret code, I guess, if we look at the ideas, so um, we look at the really stress, so mercy... So brought me from my pagan land. So brought and then pay is kind of a stressed syllable. So it's like mercy, brought, pay, taught, and then sort of my benighted. So it's like night, soul. So it's sort of, yeah, taught, night, soul, stand. Um, there's a God. And then there's and a saviour, save. Okay, and then um, redemp. I don't know. Neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Um, so I guess he's saying that there's almost like this this mercy, you know, calling for mercy, pagan and pay even pay and pagan, and then knight and stand. So she thinks that there's always these quite direct, powerful words that are maybe speaking about slavery. I don't know, maybe taking a stand against slavery. Um, it's an interesting hypothesis. I think I, I can, I don't know. I can, that's the only answer I can say. I don't know. I don't know enough about this poet. Um, I just thought, I just found that really interesting that actually the stress syllables sort of accentuate these powerful words that seem to all hinge around the issue of slavery. 
and do so in quite a forceful way. So the grace of her argument is sort of running against the tempo of these stressed syllables and their quite sort of primal words that can be associated with slavery. So I find that a really, really interesting thing to look, way of looking at that. And I don't doubt for a second that um, Phyllis Wheatley wouldn't have had the ingenuity and the wit to, to go about that, to put those kind of hidden things in a poem. Um, one more thing about her poems, actually, is also this is a Christian poem, but there's a lot of poems that she's written about the sun. And there's almost a lot of sun worship that goes into her poetry and how the sun is equated as um, as classical poets that she read would have done. The sun is equated with inspiration and with the muse. And so it's quite interesting that she has these little ways of worshipping the sun. And now, what, is this an aspect maybe that she's sneaking in some references to the old gods in her poems? Now, another African-American poet or another African-American writer whose name was Jupiter Hammond, who was also a slave at the time, um, he wrote to um, Wheatley, and he sent her a poem called An Ode to Wheatley. Now, it's because he saw pagan influences in her writing. And so these, this was a poem, again, written in the sort of style of the Augustans. But each, um, each stanza of the poem would have a little verse from the Bible sort of appended to it. So it was him perhaps trying to guide her back into the light. Now, we know that it was a practice among slaves to practice voodoo. And one thing that slaves did with their voodoo altars, so voodoo was a sort of a continued worship of their old gods, albeit a surreptitious and sometimes secret one. And now when these slaves made voodoo altars, a lot of the time they would actually include um, Jesus or Mary or Christian iconography in these altars. Now, it could be that maybe they did this to make these look more like sort of acts of Christian worship rather than pagan worship. Or perhaps they were doing what, um, for instance, Hindus do, which is that Hindus, a lot of Hindus accept other gods. They don't just have to accept the Hindu gods. They will also accept, um, have gestures. They'll have like, a, so if they have a, a shrine at their home, Hindus may include a picture of Jesus or even a Bible in that shrine as well as a further extension of a multifaceted nature of God. And it could be perhaps that when pagans who already sort of believe in many gods um, get to meet with Jesus or get to meet with the Abrahamic monotheistic faiths, they're able to sort of go, OK, yeah, fine, I'll worship this God as well, whatever this God can bring me. And so I wonder, I do wonder if that was an aspect of, of Wheatley's work or whether she truly was a Christian and maybe the, the pagan influence is more unconscious or more a tribute to the pagan poets that she was influenced by, such as Virgil and Horace and, her, and Homer. I do not know, but I find that to be a really interesting point that, um, yeah, that, that the poem might, you know, that her poetry, while this is a very Christian poem and a poem about slavery, um, it's really interesting that perhaps, as 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 Jupiter, uh, a man with a pagan name, <laughs> no less, Jupiter Hammond wrote to her about maybe she, maybe there were these little subtle, or sly, or unconscious pagan influences in her work. I'm going to go off on one now. I'm going to wander off on one. So there endeth the academic. That's my alarm saying you've got ten minutes, mate, to run out of the house. So I'll stop that now. I really have to be a bit more professional about this, don't I? Okay, dismiss alarm. There we go. So I'm going to wander off on one now. So wander off on one. So wander off on one has an acronym, Woo, 
Yeah. And to really show that we have crossed the threshold from being slightly academic to not academic at all. We have, when we want someone to go woo, there's only one man who can really say woo in an authoritative way that can get your attention. And that is Ric Flair. So I was going to wander off on one about a few things. Um, the first thing I was going to wander off on one is that I saw a tweet now it's, and it made a really interesting point and I, it was just in my timeline and I think it was quite serendipitous because I think that's how I, I ended up wanting to, to look at the work of, of Phyllis Wheatley because it was 4th of July yesterday. So I think it's quite interesting to have a poet, an emancipated slave and someone who was sympathetic towards the cause of American independence. Um, and, and that was someone writing, someone um, wrote a tweet and it was a tweet saying, um, why is it that sort of so many black people believe um are religious let's just say or or believe in the christian god except the christian god um even if that was the god of people um that that ultimately visited so much misery in their life and her answer this person who was tweeting it i forgot the name of her um she said because it was god god because that's all we had all we had at the very sort of darkest moments of our lives we had god god remained with us and i can imagine some people saying no wait a minute it's still the religion of the slavers i mean um nietzsche called called uh christianity sort of any of the religions that ultimately were about the virtue of the individual so he probably would have included maybe the buddhists and the stoics in this in this category as well but he, he would have called christianity a slave morality and Nietzsche's way of, of, of doing this, he wasn't just talking about African slaves. He was saying that ultimately there's two kinds of religion. There's one kind of religion that says, go out there and just be a, I don't know, be a badass, be whatever, go and conquer. Maybe like the Viking religions or whatever. And some of the pagan religions, um, you know, go to war, <laughs> do all these things. Although it could be argued that the Christian war God did this as well in the old Testament, at least. And um, so, so he divided it into these two sort of things, whereas the slave, um, the slave, slave morality, he would say was, is something that would say something like, oh, no, be be meek, don't rebel, be virtuous and you'll be rewarded in the afterlife, for instance. And so he felt it was something that would keep people from rebellion, rebelling. Of course, that's when we look at the the, the story of emancipation. That's not really true, is it? The story of emancipation has a very prominent I speak as an atheist myself, but I, I recognize that there's a prominent Christian aspect of the story of emancipation. Now, of course, you could argue the other side and say, well, but it was Christians <laughs> that were holding, you know, they were the slavers. So do we just look at the good Christians who kind of said, no, we have to end this because it's it's um, because it's against Christianity and, and completely ignore the, the um, other Christians? For instance, the argument is often made that um, of all the philosophy, all of the moral injunctions in the Bible, there isn't a single moral injunction against slavery. Um, there are instructions in the Old Testament as to how to treat your slaves, but there's nothing accompanying those moral instructions to say slavery is bad and you shouldn't do it. Similarly, Christ said, I, I'm here not to change a word of the law. So, and if that part of, so if part of the word of the law incre includes the how to treat slaves and how to punish people who mistreat slaves and how to punish people who mistreat other people's slaves and so on, um, 
it's still, yeah, you could say that Christ is advocating slavery. But the counter argument is that with Christianity, the, the very aspects and morals of Christianity, the fact that, and I think this is what Wheatley's poem gets round to, it's the central argument of Wheatley's poem, is actually, um, yes, yeah, so while there are no actual injunctions against slavery, um, you could say that there's, it's actually within Christianity itself, the sort of the recognition of other people as human beings and the liberty of the human soul and the fact that we are all capable of, according to Christianity, accepting Christ and becoming born again or free, that that in itself ultimately could only lead. It's too contradictory to carry on with something like slavery and to hold those views. So it could be seen in a dialectic sense, a dialectic being a kind of way in which history unfolds, a sort of, almost like a sort of predetermination of cultures going through different transformations one on top of the other so people could argue that it was part of a christian dialectic tradition that ultimately it leads to this idea of freedom for all so th there's two arguments for you i i i uh I, I like being kind of agnostic on that um that actually even if i don't necessarily believe a religion to be true I can still see a religion as part of a progression of ideas that change society and how society ultimately needed to accept that religious presupposition first in order to get to that set of arguments. So, you know, I'm 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 not one of those atheists who wants to kind of get in it in the way of anyone's worship or anything like that. You know what I mean? I think I went through that phase earlier and I'm happily out of it and I'm just interested in people and what makes people happy and what makes people get along with each other. And I don't believe in the miracle <laughs> in the unsubstantiated miracle that would be the rationalist utopia um if we got rid of all religion tomorrow. I think we humans would still find ways of being horrible to each other and being nice to each other. So, yeah, I'm really not on that get rid of religion train of thing. I'm personally not a believer, but I find people fascinating. And because of that, I find religion fascinating too. So that's the end of me going off on one, I think. Hope you enjoyed that podcast. I really was happy to sort of have a good look at the work of Phyllis Wheatley. And, to, and I was really happy to discover, because I didn't really know her that well before I started my research this week, but I was really happy to discover a poet who not only represents a really important sort of sociological and historical significance within her being the first published African-American woman, um, but also I just think she's a damn good poet. And it's really great to celebrate her work and I'm going to keep on reading her work, I think, because I enjoyed reading it. I also enjoy doing this podcast and I enjoy it whenever I find out people like listening to the podcast. So if you want to help out in any way, if you want to share it um, via digital or good old fashioned human to human means, whether um, whether you shout it across the street at a stranger, listen to Rusty Sonics, or if you whisper it into the shell like ear of your lover before you both fall asleep. <laughs> at night good night my love listen to rusty sonnets or i'm sorry if that haunts anyone to the grave now me sort of adopting that persona or you might do it on the twitter or on the facebook so you might give it a nice review on itunes if you're listening to it on itunes 
I don't know if you can review stuff on Spotify or not. I don't know. If there's anything that you can click on Spotify that to say I enjoyed it, then and you did it. If you did enjoy it, then then click on it. That's my basic thing. Um, but yeah, always always great to be listened to. Always great when you share it. Um, you can contact me via Poet Nile on Twitter, P O E T N I A L L, and you can also contact me at rustysonnets at gmail dot com if you do want to get in touch. And finally, hey, I should plug my website. NiallOSullivan.co.uk N-I-A-L-L-O-S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N.co.uk If you're interested in any other stuff that I do or my poems or whatever. Once again, it's been really good fun. I really enjoyed this week's episode, both the reading, the preparation and the execution. Um, I hope you have a good one and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>